Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have a special guest, Dr. Donald DeYoung of the Creation Research Society. Uh, Dr. DeYoung is the chairman of the Department of Physical Science at Grace College, Winona Lake, Indiana. Uh, he's taught at Grace since 1972 with sabbatical leaves spent in San Diego and the South Pacific. Dr. DeYoung is also on the faculty of the Institute for Creation Research. Love those guys. Uh, courses taught include physics, astronomy, and mathematics. He speaks on creation topics and believes that the details of nature are a powerful testimony to the Creator's care for mankind. Guys, today we're going to be talking to Dr. DeYoung about his latest book, Discovery of Design. This book, I think the word would be, it's unique. It's very unique. Uh, we have, well, we're going to hear from Dr. DeYoung exactly what this book is about. But in a nutshell, it gives you uh, examples from nature, from God's creation, uh, that mankind has studied and copied uh, to produce various technologies. In other words, God got it right the first time. We can't seem to come up with a good design for something and then we study nature. We study what God has done and we find out, huh, wow, that's ingenious. Millions of years of random chance? Or was there a designer in all this? So anyway, we're going to be talking to Dr. DeYoung about that. Let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Donald DeYoung to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you. Glad to join you, Mike. Awesome. Hey, well, friends, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Dr. DeYoung wrote a book called Discovery of Design. And today I want to hear from Dr. DeYoung on what this book is about and, and well, how we can use it uh, to point towards the creator. Uh, so, Don, if I can call you that, uh, why did you write this book? Well, this whole effort, uh, I wanted to share an important trend going on in science today. The engineers today, the scientists, the inventors increasingly are looking at nature. They're looking at creation for new ideas, uh, solutions to, to problems and, and new products. Uh, they call this field biomimicry or bioinspiration. The whole idea that uh, the answers are there in nature as we study animals and plants and, and all the details of, of, of nature. And uh, I believe that uh, the Creator has embedded in nature countless practical ideas for us to uncover and make use of. And uh, it's a whole new way to study um, science, looking at the secrets that God has put there. So it's a positive way to look at science. It's all good, intelligent design honoring our maker. Right, right. And so um, tell me a little bit about how you go about uh, showing or, or how you give examples of, of where science and uh, industry people out there are using uh, God's design to come up with really cool products, advances in medical sciences, uh, these types of things. Well, in our book Discovery of Design, we have about a hundred examples of of this very area. Uh, just to get us thinking about it, uh, the classic uh, example is often um, Velcro which was discovered in nature by uh, cockleburs that were sticking to uh, 
uh, a dog's fur of a fellow over in England who was taking a hike. He got back oh. home and studied these cockleburs, these little uh, burrs, these prickers, and saw little hooks on the end. And so from that, he made a, you know an artificial type of Velcro, which is everywhere now. So it's not that he invented it. He found it in nature. And these ideas go on and on. What we did for this book is, uh, well, we just kind of keep an eye on the media and on the magazine articles and on the research that's coming out of the laboratories. And, again, uh, where people are looking for, for answers for new ideas are nature on all scales, whether it's the flight of birds, or even in the area of uh, very small nanotechnology. We're surrounded by these uh, neat examples, and of course most of them we have not found yet. Okay, and so who, what, what target audience are you looking for uh, as far as, you know, who did you write this book for? Well, I think uh, the book is for anyone who has an interest in science, and especially those of us who are a little bit weary of the evolutionary stamp that's put on every article that we seem to uh, come across, uh, you know, that's often the rebuttal to design in nature. It's said that given time, mutations and natural selection kind of um, sort things out and, uh, you know, uh, that's how you end up with uh, apparent design. But the fact is, we find a lot of these intricate designs in the fossils. They've been around since the very beginning from the creation week. These things uh, don't evolve. And we even find lots of examples in the non-living world. And we can discuss some of those uh, as well. So um, we're just, uh, we, we just keep watching the media. And uh, I talk to scientists. And we have a laboratory here at the school where I am um, just researching these kind of ideas of uh, my goodness, discoveries in nature that are practical benefits for us. I think what all this shows is that when God put this world together, even though it's no longer perfect and we have plenty of problems, we can still see how it's been set up for our well-being, even in the smallest details. Absolutely. So tell me some of your uh, favorite ones from this book, different examples. Well, there's a long list, and uh, the book actually has some separate chapters, some examples from uh, Water World and some from Flight and, uh, and, and Land and Insects, and on and on it goes. But there are some that uh, really, uh, I think, are, have a special interest. Uh, let me mention uh, one from Flight. Um, there's a, a bird called a kingfisher. It's worldwide. Yeah. It's in Colorado. It's, it's, it's in Indiana where I am and everywhere. Now, this kingfisher, a uh, small bird, and it really looks awkward. Small body and a big head. It, it looks Mike, like it was designed by a committee or something. <laughs> well, this bird sits up on a tree branch above water, and when a minnow comes by, down into the water it goes to get its lunch. When it does that, it makes very little splash. It just slips right into the water. I guess maybe it should be in the Olympics for a high dive, making a nice smooth uh, insertion. Now, the rest of the story involves the country of Japan where they have um, uh, mountains and they have high-speed trains. They call them bullet trains. We don't have anything quite like that in the U.S. These trains travel very fast, 200 miles an hour, and they're very safe, but there's a problem. When these trains exit a tunnel, 
There's a cushion of air that builds up in front of them at their high speed, and as they leave the tunnel, the air rapidly expands and makes a uh, sonic boom. It sounds like thunder. It wakes people up. It rattles windows. It's not a good thing. One of the fellows over there in Japan who designs these trains was also a bird watcher, and he got to thinking about the uh, kingfisher. The way that bird slips from air into water is a large pressure difference somewhat similar to a train leaving a tunnel. So the engineers who build these trains, they went back to work and they redesigned the front end, the, the engines of these trains, streamlined them with a very long tapered front end. You, uh, Our listeners might recall that kind of picture. And what they did is they uh, copied, they mimicked the shape of the beak of the kingfisher. When they completed that, they tried out these trains, and now when they leave a tunnel, there's no sound. And the trains also save about 10 or 20% of energy totally. Of all things, we're learning how to design high-speed trains by studying the design of birds that were made way back on day number five of the creation week. Huh. Yeah, I, I was looking at that just last night. And uh, it's kind of comical because some of these trains even have uh, lights exactly where the bird's nostrils are. They were kind of copying the nostrils of the bird, uh, almost kind of humorous what they've done, and it it all works for them then. Right, it's like they're giving a wink, uh, just kind of showing what where they're getting their information. That's um, yeah. What about um, boy? There's so many neat examples from the book. What about the uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, the Namid beetle, the Namid beetle, uh, using uh, as far as water collection? Yes, there are lots of examples in the insect world on all scales, this design that we find. And uh, that's a beetle that lives uh, in uh, several of the countries in Africa, in, in the desert area, and in the Sahara area. And it's found that this beetle has just a wonderful way to collect moisture in the morning. It has the kind of grooves and the kind of uh, shell that collects dew. And then these droplets come together and they run down the little grooves in his back to his, his, his head, to his mouth, where he can absorb and, and get that water. So whereas most creatures would have a difficult time surviving in the desert, this little bug uh, just prospers and does well. And so uh, those who live in those desert places uh, have now um, copied the, the texture, the surface of a beetle with fabrics, and in a similar way they can collect water in a desert environment. Uh, this has happened in deserts around the world now, realizing that there's moisture there, it's in the air, especially in the morning, and there are ways to collect it. And uh, here we have insects, once again, made back in the creation week, and uh, they've been around ever since, and they are teaching us how to have well-being in those dry areas. That blows me away. Uh, another one that I thought was just amazing was uh, termite mounds and the ventilation, uh, how we have learned to, uh, well, certain architects are starting to use the ventilation that they see from termite mounds Yes, these termites, these ant-like little uh, critters, uh, in some areas, especially, again, in Africa, they build large mounds, 10, 20, 30 feet high. They're like small mountains, and, you know, they're just very industrious, these uh, insects, and uh, carrying grains of sand to build it up. 
And as they study these uh, impressive termite mounds, they find out that there are um, openings, there are tunnels, there are channels inside these mounds. And these channels are set up to uh, conduct uh, air, especially drawing in air from the base and having it uh, then leave through the top. It's sort of a natural ventilation system. In fact, even when it goes very warm, way above 100 Fahrenheit, uh, when they insert thermometers into these termite mounds, they're, they're cool as can be inside. It's like a natural air conditioning system that these uh, termites make, again, for their, their survival and health. Well, these kind of systems then can be copied for buildings, and uh, this has been done, especially in some of the capital cities in Africa, where they can uh, have buildings that don't even have electrical air conditioning, but with these kind of conduits, these kind of uh, passages and openings, you can cool the buildings naturally, copying the the system, the plumbing, the air channels that uh, these insects have made. And even beyond that, Mike, as they study these uh, all kinds of uh, insects, especially termites and ants, the way they, they move around quickly, and uh, they don't seem to have any leader, but they know what they're doing. Actually, they interact with their next-door neighbor. As they uh, make mathematical models of the behavior of these creatures, how they don't bump into each other, but back and forth they go, they can use these models. There are something that are called algorithms. There's equations that they come up with which are actually helping us to organize the activity in our major airports. I mean, things happen in an airport. The planes come in, they have particular uh, places where they land, and then you have to clean the airplane and turn it around and load it up and have it take off again. And uh, with all that complexity, they're learning that uh, you can do this more efficiently if you use some of these patterns, some of these algorithms that the ants teach us in this modern day, learning how to live, how to be effective by studying these, by studying God's creatures. It's wonderful. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is wonderful. That just blows me away. I mean, if, if somebody believing that somehow through random chance uh, and some mutations, somehow these termites uh, and the ants for that matter learned these things and are able to pass it on to future generations through, uh, what, instincts or whatever, I mean, it, it just boggles your mind to think that these ants somehow evolved this by chance. No, that, that points to a creator. Yeah. I mean, now, once again, um, the, the other side, they'll often say, well, we would expect this. Over millions of years, things have sorted out. They naturally select those that weren't designed, died off, and were left with the ones that are designed. But that whole argument is weak. The fact is, uh, off the target of uh, practical ideas, but... Um, Oh, there's a there's an extinct fossil called a trilobite. You would have some of those fossils yeah. in uh, Colorado. This creature's not around anymore, but it lived in shallow water. It's the first one of the first creatures that we find that had eyes that could see. It actually lived under shallow water. Well, when we study these eyes of the trilobite, they have a calcite lens. They have multiple lenses. Their eyes were more complex than our eyes are today. What I'm saying is that from the very beginning, from the creation week, these plants and animals and trilobites were designed beyond anything we can comprehend. These things have not developed more complexity over time. From the very beginning, they have the stamp of the creator on them. Hmm. Yeah, trilobites, 
<laughs> going way off the path here, but um, when my wife and I were on uh, our honeymoon in Costa Rica, that was 10 years ago, uh, we were on the beach. I'm sure it wasn't a trilobite, but we saw two organisms that were about the size of, of well, about the size of your hand, maybe, the length, but a little thinner, that looks just like the pictures of trilobites online. I don't know what we saw, but it was, they, they just cling, they, they clung to rocks. And, uh, yeah, it's just the, 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 the waves kind of receded a little bit and the water, ke- you know, came down off the beach and, and you could see them clinging to rocks. I now, to this day, I'll never know what I saw, but. Well, I know what you mean, and I've seen them also. Uh, one name for them are cellopods. And they do, oh, okay. they do resemble, uh, now trilobites are gone. They're, they're extinct with all the legs they had. But these creatures that you saw, uh, I guess I would call it a modern cousin. Now, I'm not into the long ages, oh. but uh, they're still with us. And, and they cling so strongly to surfaces, you can't pry them loose. But uh, That's right. they're alive and they're there. Yeah, it moves really slow. And, yeah, it just clung to that rock. We tried to pull one off and realized that if we pulled any harder, we'd probably injure it. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's a, that's a rabbit trail for you. Um, what about bats and sonar systems? Well, that would be another classic one similar to Velcro, the idea that bats were studied. This would be the early days of World War II to come up with the idea of radar and underwater um, sonar. These creatures, you know, their complexity just puts us in our place. The way they give off, uh, actually it's a high-frequency sound wave, which bounces off whatever obstacle might be in their way, and then they pick up, so they need to have a a sender and a receiver, and it happens so rapidly. So uh, they're doing electronics, and uh, we've learned that from them. And not only bats, but uh, creatures underwater as well give off electrical signals and then pick up the, the, the reflections, uh, whether they're staying away from predators or looking for food themselves. Uh, these creatures are programmed for success, and we have much to learn from them. Fascinating. Um, another thing you talk about is the cuttlefish and camouflage. Talk about that. Well, the cuttlefish, it looks a bit like a squid. Uh, They're, of course, very small when they're born, but they can grow two or three feet in size. Uh, They're saltwater. They live uh, worldwide, uh, kind of an interesting uh, creature. And uh, what we have found is that the cuttlefish is a master of disguise. It can change its color in an instant to blend in with seaweed, or coral on the sea bottom, or wherever it happens to be. And sometimes they can just get real flashy colors, almost like they're showing off their ability. We find that underneath the surface of their skin, they have types of dye that can actually be um, changed and chemically altered so that the color will change this dye. And they also have the equivalent of small mirror-like surfaces that can reflect their surroundings. So, again, these cuttlefish, they can turn green, they can turn white, they can turn polka-dotted to become almost invisible underneath water. Well, this kind of camouflage, as you can imagine, becomes of interest to the military, to the Pentagon, where they're trying to protect our guys and gals when they're in harm's way. And this all becomes rather classified, and uh, I don't know just uh, how much progress is being made, but studies of the of cuttlefish and other similar creatures 
And by copying their ability to change color, they can build this into uh, clothing, into fabric, and you can build it into paint, whether it's a hum Humvee or some kind of vehicle, so that uh, these kind of uh, items can change color instantly to blend in with their surroundings uh, to uh, protect um, our, our soldiers. Uh, so there's some interest from the Pentagon studying a sea creature. And again, we believe that the cuttlefish and all the other creatures of the water were made on day number five. That's when the fish of the sea and the birds of the air were all made. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, another thing that you brought up in the book was the Eiffel Tower and how uh, the leg bone gave some, some interesting uh, uh, inspiration to the Eiffel Tower. Well, the thing is, these, this design, it, it just, it, it's, it's all these different areas. We talked about creatures underwater. We talked about the kingfisher flying. And uh, so um, this one involves, yes, our own, our own body, which also has uh, just endless designs. This story goes back 100 years ago when there was an architect who was trying to come up with new ideas uh, for building. In fact, there was a competition going on. One day, this architect uh, was with his doctor friend, and it was a slow day. They were sitting in the office, and the doctor had a bone on his desk, a femur. Now, that's the largest bone in the human body. It's the upper part of your leg. And this architect picked up this bone, and he was looking at it. Uh, it's interesting. It can be a foot and a half long, and it has a ball and socket at the top that's so we could squat and swivel and move like that. And uh, the ball kind of uh, curves off to the side. And uh, when you look at uh, this uh, femur bone, it looks it looks kind of awkward. You think, well, now that ball could break off. And people do have hip trouble, but it's a very strong network, and that uh, femur works well for us. Well, what the architect did is he looked more closely at this femur. Architects are into mathematics. And he saw the way the ball and socket on the top of this bone kind of um, curves around. It's the, the, the ball is not straight up and down, but it's off to the side. And he thought, could I construct something that has this um, curved, tapered base? Uh, by the way, this architect's name was Gustav Eiffel. And the competition at this time was in Paris. They were having a world exposition. And uh, Eiffel got the award to put up this building. Of course, we're talking about the Eiffel Tower. And he built it out of, you know, raw metal, out of steel. And even all the little cross braces in the base of the Eiffel Tower with that um, curved base, he was copying the, the, the ligaments, the structure inside the femur. Well, they put that uh, tower up, and the competition, the other architects said, that's an ugly building. All you have is raw steel. It'll probably collapse under its own weight. Well, that was 1889. Here we are 100 <laughs> and some years later. The other buildings are mostly gone, but the Eiffel Tower still stands. Of course, it's a popular tourist attraction, millions of visitors per year. And Eiffel in his diary, diary writes that he got this idea on how to design the tower by studying the design of this femur, this bone that God placed in our own bodies. Neat story. Mm. Amen. Yeah, uh, and, and an amazing design it is. I mean, you look at how much the body can put up with, how much uh, physical exertion and, uh, you know, how much weight you can put on those bones. Exactly. Yes. Amazing. Um, what about spider silk? I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but 
Uh, there's just so many things to talk about. This book is so fun. Well, that's that's fine. I, I like all those examples as well. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the examples keep coming. Uh, Mike, we've gone beyond this book now. And we the book's title is Discovery of Design. But we have a, a website by the same title, discoveryofdesign.com, where we have hundreds more examples. Uh, I have kind of a design of the month going beyond the book. And it's just kind of a fun area, again, honoring our maker with these details that we're finding uh, in in nature. Now, you mentioned spider silk. Uh, that's so curious. These spiders, they seem to make this silk out of air and water. And yet they spin this fiber, and for its size, it's even stronger than steel. That is, if you could take iron or steel and, and get it down to that narrow a strand, the spider silk is stronger, and of course it's stretchable. And um, uh, one area that's, I'm not, I didn't even make the book, but we've learned something new about these um, spider webs. Some of these spiders, when they make a web, especially the kind of the funnel spider that make their web on the ground, they actually put a surface coating on the web of a material that is um, uh, ultraviolet light sensitive. Now, we can't see UV light. I mean, we see the visible light, but we don't see infrared light. We don't see ultraviolet light, but some creatures do. And we have found out that some birds can see uh, ultraviolet light. So what happens, the spider makes a web. Now, he wants to catch bugs, but he doesn't want a bird to fly into this web because that would destroy his web and, uh, and all his work. And so he coats this web with this material that reflects ultraviolet light from the sun so that the birds can see that. And so they dodge out of the way and don't hit the web. We, it would just look like a plain web dust. It might be even invisible in the dark, but these birds can see that. This idea, I'm not sure how well I explained it, is leading to safety for windows in buildings. Now, when you have uh, large windows, birds have a way of flying into these windows. They see the reflection, and they hurt themselves, break their necks, and we lose lots mm. of birds that way. What they're doing is they're taking the same uh, idea that spiders have, and they're putting um, lines of... Um, chemical on these windows that reflects ultraviolet light. We don't see those lines. It's an invisible chemical. But a bird swooping toward the window sees these lines. He sees that there's a window there and dodges out of the way. So um, this is leading to great safety for birds so they don't smack into windows using a coating that spiders have taught us how to use. They were trying to keep the birds out of their webs. We're trying to keep birds from hitting windows, and this seems to be working very well. Oh, boy. Uh, what about uh, the elephant nose fish and the ghost knife fish? <laughs> You're going right down the line, and I love all these examples. Oh, there's so many good ones in your book. I love this book. There is an elephant nose fish. This is a freshwater fish. You might have those in your uh, your pet stores in your area. They, they, they get... Uh, five, six uh, inches long, and they do have a real long snout on them. What they have found is that these fish are highly sensitive to pollutants in water. And I'm talking parts per million, parts per billion of, uh, of chemicals. And uh, they can pick up on those, and actually they study the electronics going on in an uh, elephant nose fish and what kind of reaction he's giving off. 
And uh, this really is more by analogy, by yeah, learning how they can be so sensitive to these chemicals, we can build electronics that likewise pick up and are sensitive to chemicals in water. So these elephant fish are teaching us how to purify water, how to protect water, how to, uh, uh, how to, how to monitor, how to quality control for water. Uh, the fish have been doing that since they were made creation week. And so we learn from them ourselves how to protect the water. Okay, so I was, okay, yeah, <laughs> there's so many neat examples. What about the dog paw? Uh, say that again? Uh, the dog paw and, and shoes. Okay, oh, the dog paw, yes, another good one. <laughs> you're, you're picking on some good ones, Mike. Um, every <laughs> one of these examples has an interesting story that goes with it, and uh, our hearers will be familiar with this, actually. It goes all the way back to 1932, about a century ago. Out on the East Coast, there was a fellow, his name is Paul Speary, and he was a sailor. He had a small sailboat. He liked to go out there and uh, uh, off the coast of the U.S. Now, back then, there was a problem. The deck of the boat would get wet, it would get slippery, people would fall, and you could hurt yourself. They didn't think of a good way to uh, solve this problem. One winter day... It wasn't sailing season, but Paul Speary was walking his dog down an icy sidewalk, and he was slipping and sliding, and he watched his dog, a cocker spaniel, who was sure-footed and just kind of padded along on the ice with no slip. When he returned home, he was looking at the paw of his dog. We've all seen that before. The paw has several um, little pads on it. And when he looked more closely, the pads themselves had sort of like um, a fingerprint, little grooves on it. Well, he went to work. He was an inventor of this Paul Speary. He took a piece of uh, rubber fabric and wrapped it around his shoe. And with a blade, he cut some grooves, some slanted grooves at the bottom of this rubber underneath his shoe. And he walked outside on the ice. And, of course, the traction was instant. He didn't fall now. He came up with the idea of putting a tread on a shoe rather than having it smooth on the bottom. He patented this idea. He sold it to the U.S. Navy, who started to use it a million-fold in their shoes. Paul Speary started a shoe store a company, which still is going today. And there's a classic shoe that um, sailors use. It's called a Speary Topsider. It just, uh, it's, it's the whole idea of an athletic shoe, where there's a tread, where there's, uh, uh, you know, grooves on the bottom so you can be more sure, sure-footed. This idea came from the paw of a dog, dogs made on day number six of creation week when all the land animals were made as God programmed it, and then we learn from that still today uh, the, whole, the whole shoe world, learning from uh, an animal like a dog. I love that. Um, okay, <laughs> here's a fun one. Body odor and insect repellents. Now, whatever you're about to say, I must have the opposite. Because <laughs> if I go outside in the summertime, I can be in a group of people, nobody gets bitten, and I'll end up with about ten bites. Isn't that the truth? Some people seem to draw <laughs> mosquitoes and bees more than others, and then uh, <laughs> that's very true. And uh, they've studied, again, this goes back to the human body and the kind of uh, 
perspiration we give off, of course, that cools our body. That's all very important, and some, sometimes some uh, fragrances go with it. And uh, that's been looked at, the very chemicals that are in there, and they can insert those into tubes and have different channels in the tube, and then they can insert mosquitoes and see which tube they happen to go through. And in that way, they can tell which chemicals are attracting uh, these bugs and which aren't, and then they can duplicate that whether it's a bug spray or whatever they happen to be using, uh, these bugs are just, they're programmed to go after certain uh, odors, and uh, by studying the, the natural odors from the human body and from elsewhere, we can learn how to protect ourselves um, from those bugs. Certainly, uh, things like mosquitoes have their proper place in nature. They're part of the whole food web, the food chain, especially for birds, but we don't like them uh, going after us. And so in this way, uh, we can learn how to protect ourselves from from bug bites. I don't get it. Yeah, I, you know, it doesn't matter how bad I stink. It doesn't matter how long it's been since I've last showered. They're still coming after me. So, yeah, I must have a neon sign on my back that says, you know, uh, mosquitoes are welcome. Well, I'd like you to be <laughs> along on a, on a picnic then. You see, they'll go to you and leave the rest of us free. That's right. I play interference while you guys all have a good time. <laughs> okay. Um, here's another one. Uh, skin and uh, self-repairing plastic. Now, that blew me away. Well, we all know how well our, our bodies can heal themselves, uh, uh, sometimes slower or faster, but our body really are designed to take care of themselves. Some parts of our body, like our eyes or the inside of our mouth, heal very rapidly, and uh, that's a good thing. And, of course, there are very complex mechanisms there. And so uh, designers have thought, can we come up with something analogous when it comes to uh, non-living surfaces, whether it's plastic or the fuselage of an airplane or whatever? And so by duplicating or mirroring what happens in the body, they're making some good progress. For instance, let's say you have um, some... Uh, Oh, a chassis. Maybe it's maybe it's the fuselage of an airplane. They're using lots of composites these days, uh, plastic materials. If that cracks, of course, you can be in trouble. Well, what they're doing now with some of these uh, composite materials, these layers of plastic, they're embedded in there capsules with uh, liquid in them, something like super glue, so that if um, if plastic does crack. It will release these chemicals, this liquid, I'll call it super glue, which can rapidly fill up the crack and solidify it and make it harder. And actually, that will become the most, uh, the, the strongest and safest part of the plastic. Now, that couldn't be repeated lots of times, but that would be a way to um, um, solve a problem of, uh, of, of some kind of uh, surface, plastic or whatever, which would crack when you don't want it to. It will self-seal itself up and so that then you can go on. They can make these capsules very small, just uh, countless small, almost like little pods with a liquid in them, just waiting to be used if a fracture occurs. So that would be the application from human skin. Mm. Now that that is that's going to be uh, awesome when uh, certain companies start using that in their products. Uh, I, I can see where that could help in so many ways. Uh, I, and I wonder if they can potentially use that in in the boating industry. You know, your your smaller recreational boats, you get a little crack going and it heals itself. It just kind of repairs. Now, yeah, like you said, it's only going to last so long. You can't 
keep ding in your boat before you have a problem. But yeah, that could be. You name it, whether it's a boat hull or, uh, my goodness, a cell phone case, anything with that kind of material could be useful. Uh, Mike, let me mention another example. I know our time is going by here, but just a, a different category okay. from something that's non-living. I find these especially fascinating as designs in nature. There's a type of star in our heavens. It's called a pulsar. These are small, compact stars, and they're spinning very rapidly, and they kind of pulsate their light. They actually blink off and on. Now, they blink so rapidly, if you were to look at one of these stars, it just looks like it's on, but actually it's, it's flickering like a high-speed strobe. Some of these stars are blinking at hundreds of times per second. Well, these pulsar stars, they're also called neutron stars, they are so exact with their spinning time. It's like a frequency. It's like a, a clock. And actually, um, they are more exact than the, the precise clocks we have today. We have what are called atomic clocks. We have quartz, quartz clocks. And these pulsars are right in there competing as the most accurate standard of time that's available. Now, we need very accurate time today for our computers, and my goodness, for GPS, when you're using that, satellites and their position and their time just in down to nanoseconds. And it's realized that uh, this is a natural time standard that we have in the sky. Even in our own Milky Way, there are hundreds of these pulsars that are finding use as a time standard. And it makes me think about um, the creation week on day number four, when the stars are put in the sky, the book of Genesis says that they're for times and seasons and days and years. Of all things, stars are for time, for very precise time. They become even more accurate than our atomic clocks today. And the interesting thing is, Mike, pulsars, they're not alive. So one cannot say that they mutate and that natural selection has helped them to become more accurate. They've been there since the, the very beginning of time, just waiting for us to find them and make use of them. And so uh, I like those examples that there's no evolutionary explanation for them. They're just designed for our use. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, th there was no evolutionary process there. Huh. Okay. That's that's a very good one. Um, also in the book, you talk about DNA and um, the ability of DNA to store information. Uh, what's fascinating is, you know, we, we continue to build better and faster and smaller computers, but we still can't come anything close to DNA. Well, certainly true. Uh, DNA in the cells of our body, and beyond that, um, our the, our brains, which we we don't understand very well, the most sophisticated computer that there can be, in the, at least in the physical universe, we've got so much to learn. In fact, Mike, we've been talking about these designs, I guess I would call them macroscopic, big things, like a pulsar star, or the paw of your pet dog, or the kingfisher bird. But uh, suddenly, uh, when it comes to DNA and to cells, we're down in the microscopic, the sub-microscopic level. And uh, who knows 
what kind of intricate designs there are down there waiting for us to find and make use of to solve problems, to come up with new products and just uh, uh, more efficient ways to do things. That's a whole new frontier that's completely uh, untapped. The deeper we look into nature, uh, micro, ma uh, nano, and on down, the more design that we see. I got to tell you, creation is uh, not simple. The complexity uh, keeps us going, and uh, probably for all eternity, we'll be exploring the way God puts things together. But yes, DNA is one example of uh, of information storage and uh, information and energy beyond even what we can think of. And you didn't mention this in your book, so I'm not sure if you know this figure, but do you happen to remember how many uh, gigabytes of information can be stored in one uh, strand of DNA? I've heard different values, and they range so greatly, I'm not sure anyone really knows this. You can You can measure it different ways. You know, it's like you can read what's the capacity of the human brain before you get saturated. Is it uh, is it 500 books or is it a bookshelf 500 miles long? You can read any of those cases. So, um, yeah, you can make guesses on that, but uh, I'm sure that that's all they are. And uh, even, my goodness, uh, part of DNA was often said to be junk DNA thought to be useless, some kind of vestige from our evolutionary past. Today we're, re we're realizing that it's not junk DNA. There's more information there that we just weren't aware of. And so whatever that number is for the, uh, for the memory capacity of DNA, it's going up the more we realize the capacity and the, the room there is there to store. So I don't know, you're certainly beyond gigabytes, you're into terabytes, and whatever comes next, it's, it may be boundless. Wow, wow. So uh, this book, and guys, I, I highly suggest you get it. It is, it's just a fun book. And it, it's just many different, like Dr. DeYoung mentioned, there's uh, about 100 examples of different things from nature uh, that you can look at that um, just show incredible design. Um, so Don, what do you think the, the uh, application to all this is? Well, what can we learn from this book and all of these examples? Well, I think we learned that uh, nature did not come by chance. Uh, we realize that already. But I think mainly this whole area is an encouragement to us. And this day of uh, being bombarded with evolutionary and naturalistic ideas to realize there is a whole other side. In fact, the other side is so refreshing, looking for these secrets, uncovering the treasures that God put in nature. And uh, uh, I'm a professor at, a, at Grace College in Indiana, and I'm encouraged to see the next generation of students coming along, scientists that can carry this on, doing research, making discoveries, but honoring the maker with what we do. And that's what we try to do in this book, kind of give an answer to the whole idea that things just happen by mutations and natural selection. It's just there. It's in nature for us to find. So I think it's encouragement. I think it's a new, a new paradigm, as you would call it, for science, um, looking at what God put there for us to find. And once again, even in an imperfect world, there's lots there to find. It shows God's fingerprint 
all around us. Hmm. Amen. Okay, so you have a number of other books as well. Now, okay, first of all, you're, you're part of the Creation Research Society, correct? Well, that's the CRS, the Creation Research Society. Uh, the website is creationresearch.org. It's the uh, oldest creation group in the country. There are other groups, uh, and uh, they're all needed, and uh, lots going on. But, yes, the Creation Research Society is a group of about 1,600 people worldwide, both scientists, guys and gals, but also anyone who has an interest in this topic who's uh, welcome to join us. We do... Uh, we have um, an endowment. We have funds. We, we sponsor research. We uh, publish materials. We give talks, all of the above. Yes, that's the Creation Research Society, a group that God has blessed. And, and you're also part of the faculty of the Institute of Creation Research. Now, how does that differ from the Creation Research Society? Well, again, there are several um, uh, related groups. Uh, the group you just mentioned, the ICR, is actually over in uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, they have graduate-level courses. Uh, there's another group back here in the Midwest. It's the, the museum people who built the Creation Museum down in Kentucky, and that's called Answers in Genesis. So there are multiple groups. kind of hard to keep them straight, but um, they're all doing a good job. They are all uh, uh, have their own realms. The group that I'm connected with, the CRS, Creation Research Society, we're more into research and coming up with the ideas, and we let other groups maybe publicize them. So we all work together. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I just... Uh, oh, maybe a little bit less than a month of a month ago, I got to see uh, Dr. Jason Lyle of ICR uh, speak up in Denver. That was that was a treat. Yep, he's an astronomy friend of mine. But yeah, in fact, okay, good segue. You have a book on astronomy. Um, tell me about that. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I have several books I, I like to write, and um, what I try to do is take complicated ideas and put them on the bottom shelf where we can understand them. Science has this reputation that it has to be, you know, technical and big words and dry, and that's not true at all. My goodness, nature is for us, especially for believers, uh, because we know who put it all together in the first place. And so I like to write for that kind of audience. I do have a book called Astronomy in the Bible. It has 100 questions and answers about space how we measure the distance to stars, what was the star of Bethlehem, what are some issues with the Big Bang, what stars are, are named in Scripture. So that was a fun project. And by the way, I have other books. I have a book on science activities for kids. I have an e-book on uh, dinosaurs available at, on Amazon. I have a book on weather questions and answers. Probably astronomy is uh, one of my favorite areas because, of course, that's 99% of creation, and uh, that's just the glories of the sky above. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've also, I have purchased uh, your book, Thousands, Not Billions, Challenging the Icon of Evolution, Questioning the Age of the Earth. That one is much more technical. You want to talk about that one? That's the one book that I've written that is on the technical side. It's titled Thousands, Not Billions. That book came out of a research project. When you get interested in creation studies, you don't lock up the laboratory and go home. Just say, God did it. 
Instead, um, creation opens up whole new areas to explore. And so that's what this book, um, Thousands Not Billions, is about. A few years ago, a team of uh, us scientists got together, and we wanted to take a fresh look at um, what they're talking about, the age of the rocks and the age of the moon and and carbon-14 dating to see what's really going on. And we found a lot of fascinating results. I just mentioned carbon-14. Some of our listeners might even be afraid of that topic, thinking that carbon-14 dating is evolutionary in old age. Not at all. What we found out, is that carbon-14 supports the position of a recent supernatural creation. That's what carbon-14 was telling us, that the rocks, the minerals, the fossils are not millions or billions of years old, but only thousands. We like this idea that this whole cosmos, the Earth and space beyond, were created We don't know exactly when, but it's not millions or billions of years, which frankly is a sellout, it's accommodation to evolutionary time. Yeah. From scripture, when you look at the genealogy, especially in the book of Genesis, you end up with thousands of years, but not billions. And that's kind of what happened with this book. And so the book is kind of uh, the results of this study. It was called the RATE Project. That was short for Radioisotopes and the Age of the Earth. It was a great project. And... uh, it was just to take a fresh look at the uh, the dating of rocks and minerals with some interesting results that support biblical creation. Mm. Would you ever be interested in coming back on the podcast and talking about the Rape Project? I would love that. Well, we could sure do that, Mike. Again, uh, we'd have to hang on to our seats because that's uh, a technical area, <laughs> but I could certainly uh, do my best to understand it and to get it across. Yeah, it was a fun uh, topic. It was, we called it a research initiative. In fact, it's still going on, but it began several years ago. And uh, it was to do research on um, the age of the Earth and its components. Yeah, let's talk about that another time. Okay. Um, Another question that's a little bit out there, but uh, this book, Discovery of Design, uh, have you ever seen those those videos? Uh, Oh, boy. Incredible creatures that defy evolution. Have you have you ever thought of maybe taking this discovery of design and making a video form of it? Well, that's a good idea. And uh, yes, I've seen some of those videos. And you know, whatever we do needs to be well done. And of course, yeah. uh, you even uh, you can watch the television specials, National Geographic, and they just do a wonderful job of looking at nature. In fact, everything they do on television, it's all creation research. They just are afraid to use the word creation, but that's what they're looking at. And, uh, yes, uh, if if the budgets were there, we could certainly do quality work. Uh, but, uh, you know, we do face the limitations of time and budget, so we do what we can. But, yeah, you express a great idea to get it out there with full color and media and animation and video. That's really what our world needs today, and uh, we need quality work. Absolutely. So you already mentioned your one website, Discovery of Design. Uh, that would be, let me go back to the homepage here, discoveryofdesign.com. Uh, I've also been to another site that you must be affiliated with, the creationresearch.org. Um, do you have any other websites? That would be the extent of uh, <laughs> the time that I have. Uh, the discovery of design.com, uh, 
we just, you know, maintain that on the side. It's sort of an extension of this topic we've been talking about today. And by the way, uh, Mike, if any of our listeners uh, come across an uh, interesting design area, something like Velcro or anything like that where they've come up with a practical use for it, there's a place on the Discovery Design website where you can write in your idea, and uh, I would uh, research it and then uh, put that. What I'm accumulating there is a data bank of these kind of uh, designs, uh, once again, honoring the one who put them all in place in the first place. So we're looking for material, so uh, people are welcome to uh, get on that site and, uh, and, and and talk to us in that way. Okay. Well, that's great. That's That's, yeah. I'm sure somebody out there listening to this has some of those examples. So, okay, well, Dr. DeYoung, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the conversation.